Happy November. I'm glad everybody remembered to change their clock. Of course, if, 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 you're, <laughs> if you're using these things, right, they do it all for you. This uh, event reminded me, actually, so we have four different time zones in the United States. Covers three hours, right? Eastern time, Central time, Mountain time, Pacific time. Okay. In Arizona. Yeah, well, they're always on the same time. So there's a, a funny thing that happens, um, and it happens in the springtime at the other time change, not the one in the fall. But in the springtime, when they have the, the time change, there's a part of a western state that ends up on the same time, the exact same time, as a part of an eastern state, believe it or not. So the panhandle of Florida is on central time, Pensacola, okay? The eastern part of Oregon is on mountain time. There's a couple of counties there that are on mountain time. And so when they have the time change, central time and, and mountain time end up the same. So there's a moment there for about an hour early in the morning in the springtime where Oregon and Florida are on the same time. Believe it or not. It's almost like China. China, there's one time zone, Beijing time. It's the way it is. Okay, let's all keep praying for Ann Valinga. Ann is still recovering at home. Um, I keep hoping she's going to feel up to, to making it in to, to get in here. And uh, keep praying for Dale Wright, too, for, for safe travels. She's back in Virginia helping their daughter out. The Richies are out as well, running around like crazy people. That's good. We'll pray for them. And uh, Halloween was last night, so today must be our day, right? November 1st is All Saints Day. And by the way, that was founded in uh, 741 AD under um, the Bishop of Rome, uh, Gregory III, actually did that. And I, reading about that guy, he was actually a pretty good guy. Okay, today we're in Isaiah 6. So open your Bibles up to Isaiah 6. This chapter, the first half of the first verse, starts out incredibly badly. As bad as everything was last week, the first half of verse 1 is a gut punch. And after that, there follows a message of hope and inspiration. And finally, the second section in here is the message to Isaiah from God. So let's go ahead and start. Let me pray. Lord, our God and Savior, we thank you for this day. We thank you for all the gifts that you rain down upon us. We ask for wisdom in our decisions. Give us wisdom and discernment, Lord. Your truth is that which sets us free. And as we look at your scripture from the prophet Isaiah today, your truth today needs to set us free from the bondage, from free, free from the slavery of sin, free from falsehood, free from the bondage, 
of our lives free from our own idols. Free us to believe in your truth, Lord, to hold fast to you. Holy Spirit, enable us to trust in Jesus, who is the king of our saving faith, and to believe the words spoken of him under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, breathed out by God here. Heavenly Father, you have handed down these words for us, all the way from the prophet Isaiah to today. Help us, Lord, to be both hearers and believers of this truth, and to not believe untruth. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's start. The first half of the very first verse, chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died. Now I need to explain something about Uzziah. He was a very beloved king. He ruled for 52 years. He was 16 years old when he started. And he reigned for 52 years. And in the year that he died was when the Assyrians were still running around, hauling off the other ten tribes in Samaria, hauling them away, and leaving a very, very small remnant in all of that part of the kingdom of Israel. And so, in the middle of all this, their beloved king dies. gut punch at the worst possible moment. The year is 740 B.C. And those people that got hauled off by the Assyrians were lost to have their identity stripped from them and to never regain it. And then, after all this, the leader of their nation dies. And for most of the people alive at that time, they were, he was the only leader that they ever knew. This will seem a very odd segue, but there is a point. Hang in here with me. There's this humor company, and they're called Despair.com. They're actually pretty dang funny. They poke fun at all the leadership catchphrases and the, the, the motivational posters you see at work. And... Um, they're really good at blasting those people. They poke fun at all of it, the management lingo that's supposed to inspire people using empty phrases. Think of all the wrong, bad mottos you've heard. This company, Despair.com, makes fun out of those. And there's a huge measure of truth in some of what they put up. And they make posters of these. One of their posters has a very, very dark landscape silhouette, and you can just barely see the sun fading in the distance in the sky. The poster is titled Despair, and on the poster it says, it is always darkest just before it goes pitch black. We've all been there. And so this company is using this dark humor However, we've all been in those situations where you have a really bad situation and then something else happens and it turns into a real disaster for you. Incredibly rainy night and it's making you late for where you're trying to get going and you have a flat tire, right? We've all had those situations. This is one of those situations for Judea. 
We've seen this over and over again. So, the message like that is meant to be funny. It's dark humor. But in so many cases, it's true. And so it is for Judah here. The king is dead. We have seen this over and over again in our lives. And in the end, God has promised us eternity. That it will turn out well for us, no matter what our life is like here. It is always beautiful and grand and amazing, these but God moments. So let's continue on through the rest of this verse. Still verse 1. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. You all know this one. In fact, I have a hard time reading what Isaiah says here exactly because my mind keeps wanting to sing the song, right? What an amazing, powerful, and wonderful message. And we know it to be true. We know it to be good. And we know it to be beautiful. The Lord God, seated upon his throne, raised high in his glory, lifted up. And the train of his robe fills the temple of the Lord. Now I have a funny, funny one here. I have a note, actually, in, in the, the footnotes in my Bible. And I'm going to read you exactly what it says. In his vision, he saw not the temple in Jerusalem, but the heavenly temple. And I read that. And it came to me, let's go see what John has to say about the temple in heaven. If you flip over to Revelations 21-22, Revelations 21-22, and let me read this to you. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Sorry, I couldn't just stop at 20, 22 right there. That's also 23, all right? So four of my favorite pastors helped to edit this, this, this Bible right here. R.C. Sproul, J.I. Packer, John Piper, and Wayne Grudem. Their names are all in the front of the thing. And they helped to write these notes, these footnotes. And I'm thinking, do you guys realize the landmine you just stepped on right here? There is no temple in heaven. Heaven is the place where God lives. This is why when Satan rebels, Satan gets thrown out of heaven because heaven is God's home. He cannot be there. God judges Satan at that point. I have to admit, I want there to be a temple in heaven. Okay? And I keep having this, this gut-level reaction that there needs to be a temple in heaven, a place where I can go to worship God, and it's like, Oh yeah, God's everywhere here. I can worship God anywhere. 
right? And there, but there's this gut-level reaction that just says, but there has to be a temple. No, there doesn't have to be a temple. John explains why. But in the back of my mind, I keep thinking, I want a temple too. Nope. Let's keep going. Verses 2 and 3. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. God's angels stand above the throne, singing glory and honor and praise to the king. What an amazing image. I have to comment at this point. I happen to know those wings are twisted. I'm just saying. Verses 4 and 5. And the foundations of the threshold shook, and the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke, And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. As Isaiah is gazing at this amazing sight, he realizes he is in the presence of the God of the universe. And Isaiah knows he should not be there. He knows that he is not holy. He deserves to be wiped out completely in the presence of the Lord of hosts. Isaiah absolutely cannot be there. I want you to segue now back to Genesis. I want you to look at this different passage. So let's go to Genesis 15. Stick your finger in at Genesis 15. 1517, and we'll read that part later. But first I'm going to read you the story from Genesis 15, 1 through 16 first. And I want you to understand what's going on here. This is when God makes the covenant with Abram. Okay. And after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offering, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and he said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And this is one of the few parts that Abram actually gets right, right here, okay? And he believed the Lord, and it counted to him as righteousness. Abram had faith in God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So let me read on. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? 
He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought all these and cut the animals in half and laid each over, each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down to the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now let me stop here for a moment. Long, complicated story here about Abram, and God is making this covenant with Abram. Okay. I want you to notice here the significance of this story. We did this one a while ago. Some of, some of you might recall it. In the process of making a covenant between the two leaders, they would gather and some, with some sacrificial animals, a cow, a goat, a sheep, a dove, and a pigeon. And they sacrifice the animals and the birds. The animals, the cow, the goat, and the sheep, are cut in half, and the halves are laid on the ground. The birds are simply cleaned out, but not cut in half. Then, both parties pass between the two halves of the animals, which says to everyone present that they accept the terms that are being given. Okay? Now, the emphasis here is both sides are saying, if I violate this oath, then this is what should be done to me. That is, the one who betrays is to be killed and his body is to be cut into two halves. Okay, pretty gruesome. All right. Now look down to where your finger is. I told you to stick it in there, right? This is Genesis 15, and I'm going to read verses 17 and 18. Genesis 15, 17 and 18. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. So at this point, Abram knows he cannot walk between those animals. He knows he can't keep the deal with God. And he realizes that if he does this, and he knows he can't keep it, he's going to violate the contract that he deserves to be killed and cut in half because he violated the contract with God. So this is why this, this dream is so dark and for, foreboding for Abram. He cannot walk between the animals, and so he doesn't. And as he watches, there's this smoldering pot and a flaming torch that go between the animals. Okay. God, being God, knows Abram cannot keep the promise. So God says, when you renege on this deal, 
then I will be the one to pay your penalty. That is the significance of the smoldering fire pot. Now, these fire pots were used to cook over. They were clay pots, a large jar, you could think of it. And there are coals, burning embers inside the pot. Burning embers, okay? Keep this in mind. Now, and then this fire pot, this clay pot of embers passes between the animals. And then also a flaming torch. Now you will get this part. I think that the flaming torch is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is doing this as God passing through between the animals. And the smoldering fire pot, I want you to get this, who is the clay pot of the burning embers? Right now you have God the Father is the one sitting there making the deal with Abram. The flaming torch is the Holy Spirit. Who is the clay pot of the burning embers? It's Jesus. Right? Now, remember this clay pot of burning embers. Okay, let's go back to Isaiah 6. We're at verse 6. Isaiah 6, 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. These two stories are connected by these burning embers. The burning embers have to be Jesus. Let's keep going. Verses 8 and the first half of 9. And this begins Isaiah's commission from God. Verse 8 and the first half of 9. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, go and say this, say to this people. Now, I don't know about you, but Isaiah must have had some real chutzpah right there. Because if God were in this room, first of all, I wouldn't be up looking up at him. And if he said, who are we going to send? I would not be the first person to stand up with my hand in the air. I'd be right up against this back wall. Okay? I'm just saying. I, I'm not that guy. And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. Really? Man, I could not do that. It's just not in me. I'd be like Moses, trying to find a rock to hide under. Okay? I, I, I don't speak very well. Really, I don't. That would be me. Okay? And God tells Isaiah to go tell his people. And here is God's message. We're going to read the rest of verse 9, 9 and 10 here. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, their ears heavy. Blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, 
hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Now, I don't know how many times I've read that passage. No, actually, I can tell you. It's probably at least 40 times that I've read that passage, and this went right over my head. And I'm reading this commentary about this stuff, and all of a sudden it's like, you idiot, of course, right? God is making the unbelieving of Judah an example not to be followed. But the second half of verse 10, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. God is calling us back, calling us each individually back to him. He wants to heal us. Notice that God is not calling the proud, the lifted up, the haughty, the powerful. God is calling back the blind, the deaf, the weak, the sick, and the poor. Do you see that? Who did Jesus come and talk to? Jesus came for those people. Every single one. You know all those stories. And I had never made that connection before. That between what Isaiah is being told by God right here is exactly what Jesus ends up doing when he comes. This is the message to God's people. Verse 11. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. And the prophet Isaiah cries out, How long, O Lord? And God replies, Until cities lie waste. How incredibly tragic and sad. What an image that this should be. And in verse 12, God is giving this, this story to Isaiah. But stop and think about how this also applies at the time of Jesus. And it also applies to us today. Again, metaphor. Verse 12. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Isaiah is being told of a great exile, that God's people will be sojourners in a foreign land. And you can hear talking to Abram. God is telling Abram, your people are going to be sojourners in a foreign land. And we immediately think, oh, he's talking about the Hebrews being in Egypt. But it's also us. While we're here, we, this is not our home. This is not where we're supposed to be. Our home is in heaven. We are the for sojourners in the foreign land. This applies to us also, or it should. And we should think this way. And I can remember, it was probably 30 years ago, where I started, all of a sudden I realized one day that I started thinking this way, that this, I knew this was not my home. 
that there was another place that I really belonged. How tragic and sad an image. In verse 12, the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. This is not just a literal thing, but it's a metaphor for us. And while we are here, we call this place home, but it is not our home. Our home is in heaven with the Father, with Jesus, and with the Holy Spirit. Our home is not this place with its suffering, its sadness, and its heartbreaking memories. And the chapter ends, and though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Verse 13 closes right here. God will keep a remnant for himself. And even for this remnant, it will be difficult. Isaiah tells us here, it will be burned again. But the stump remains, and I need to tell you something about these stumps. Isaiah explains that the holy seed is the stump. Middle Eastern oak is an incredibly resilient tree. It can be burned many, many times, all the way down to a stump, something that we would think would be hopeless. And the following spring, after the rains, there will be shoots coming out of that stump. And that stump will grow back and become a great oak tree again. That stump is the holy seed. Who is the holy seed? To me, it's incredibly clear. We're talking about Jesus again. And the entire tree grows from this, which is the church. This oak being talked about right here is all of us. All of us, without time, with time taken out. All of us in the past. All of us here today. And all of us in the future. It will be that way on that day. Chapter 6 closes here with this image of inspiration and hope. So looking back over the last couple of weeks, we have the darkness of the lost battle, losing to the Assyrians, and Israel is carried off. It's a dark and gloomy picture, and the disaster of losing their king at the worst possible moment. But God gives Isaiah an image of his glory. And Isaiah is so afraid because he knows he's not holy, and he's not able to stand before God. And the angel takes the ember and touches Isaiah. The ember is Jesus. Jesus comes and rescues us. And God gives Isaiah the message to go back and tell the people of God that it, that it will be tough. Your lives will be difficult. But there is an eternity with God in the end. And it is the remnant, the shoots from the stump of the oak that will be there on that final day. God promises again to save his people. Redemption is bought and paid for to those who grow from the stump of the Lord. 
This is the lesson for us. We are the ones who are unworthy of God. Isaiah knew he was unworthy. And that is exactly an image of us. And the ember was sent to call us back. Jesus is calling us back again, over and over. Jesus had to pay for our rebellion against God, our sin, our unfaithfulness. We have our guilt taken away and our sin is atoned for. We're unworthy of any kindness from God. But God, being faithful and true, sends Jesus to pay for our sins, to make us white as snow. It is God who saves us, and it is Jesus who is our Redeemer. Jesus pays the penalty which belongs solely to all of us. Jesus takes it upon himself and himself alone. And because of that, because Jesus dies, we get to spend eternity with God the Father and Jesus and the Holy Spirit, singing praise and honor and glory before them in their shining city on the hill. Isaiah is pointing us back to God. Isaiah is telling us this message of hope. Isaiah is telling us to change the way we live in this world, to look at it differently, that this is not our home. This is temporary. And the more we look towards Jesus, the more we become like him. God loves us. I fail daily in who I should be as a Christian. God knows I am not there yet. And I am reminded of that every day. Again and again, I have to go back on my knees before Jesus. I have to rely on God, looking to God for his mercy and his love and his grace. I need that love that is beyond all comprehension or understanding. And still, God chooses us. God, our Father. Jesus purchased our redemption. If you have not believed in Jesus yet and you want this free gift of God, all you have to do is accept Jesus as your Savior. Do not wait. Pray to Jesus and ask him to come into your heart. God's greatness will be there on that day for the day of the Lord. We'll all be witness to his greatness and his splendor on that day. That shining city on the hill, the mountain of the Lord, the new Jerusalem. No need of a temple, no sun, no moon, because the presence of God and his glory is the one shining to light everything that day. Indeed, we wait for Jesus to come. Let's pray. Almighty God, in the beginning of Isaiah 41, Lord, your prophet tells us, Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach, then let them speak. Let us together draw near for the judgment. Who stirred up one from the east, whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword. 
like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am he. Heavenly Father, you are incredible, amazing, and beautiful. You have given your word from Isaiah down through the ages, carried. And though we have been unfaithful, you have given them to us. You continue to hold us in the palm of your hand. Heavenly Father, hide your words in our hearts. Carve the words of your prophet Isaiah here deep inside of us. Give us the lessons we must learn. Guide our feet in the ways of your will. Lord, we are so unfaithful, and you are so gracious and true. Your plan of redemption is so perfect. Lord Jesus, you die in our place to redeem us to save even us. It is all so amazing. Lord, we love you. You are so incredible. We bless you, praise you, and honor you, Lord. Amen.